It's election week in America in an off-cycle year. What are the races to watch on Tuesday? Welcome to a special election edition of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm your co-host, Rich Goldberg. Jared not with us this week, but we'll be joined by two experts who will share everything you need to know ahead of Tuesday's elections. And we're joined now by Josh Krosh, our columnist at National Journal and our go-to elections expert here at Jewish Insider and the Limited Liability Podcast, and also joined by Matt Castle, a features writer at Jewish Insider, who has spent the past week in South Florida covering Tuesday's special election to succeed the late Congressman Alcee Hastings. Josh, Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Rich. Good to be back. Matt, let's start with you. Uh, what has it been like walking around the district in South Florida uh, this past week? Uh, did it feel like an election was in the air? Not really. It's very low key. There are 11 candidates, about six of whom have emerged as potentially viable contenders. But because it's a special election kind of following the end of summer, um, it's an off year. People seem a little burnt out uh, after kind of like bruising election recycle last year. There's not really that much attention in the district on the race. Uh, I showed up to a polling place on Cistrunk Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale a couple of days ago, which sort of runs through the spine of the district and talked with one candidate who said that only about 75 people have been showing up a day to like a polling site that she had been to. Um, and at the polling site I was at, there was not really anyone. Uh, polling, uh, er- early voting ends uh, on Sunday um, and uh, the race is on Tuesday. But, um, you know, they're hoping that it will pick up over the weekend. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> and how did you decide to approach your coverage on the ground being deployed out there uh, for a week? I uh, So the district is diffuse. Um, it's Primarily African-American and Caribbean communities uh, throughout Broward and Palm Beach counties. There is a sort of sizable Jewish community in Tamarack, um, which is uh, home to a retirement uh, complex that is quite large. So I made my way over there um, and sort of set up a quasi-focus group before I got there. one of the sort of local Democratic leaders at the retirement community helped me speak with um, a number of residents of the, the retirement community who like shuffled in and out of this bagel place nearby. And they kind of talked to me for about four hours about all of their thoughts on the election. And they were particularly engaged. I got the sense that they had sort of done their homework. They knew all about the candidates, but they were also into different candidates. So it was hard to read where they were, you know, whether or not they were going to coalesce around anyone in particular. Um, So the focus group was kind of where I tried to get my sense of anecdotally of how people were leaning. Um, And it sort of suggested that the race was still sort of in flux. And Josh, I do want to come back to Matt Moore on the candidates, their positions and the coverage. Um, But just looking at this district, obviously, uh, we've covered on the podcast the last time we had you on dissecting the Ohio 11 race over the summer, uh, another special election uh, that was important uh, to the Jewish community. Uh, What do you make of this special, this district? How does it compare demographically to what we saw in Ohio? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about special elections is is sometimes they feel very special. Everyone is writing about them. Everyone is talking about them. And sometimes they're like the race in in Florida's 20th district, uh, 
a primary race where, as Matt was saying, there's not a lot of attention being paid, even in the local community, that it's going to be a very low turnout race that's really dependent on which candidate has the best organization, has the best the name ID, has the most money, and it's going to really go under the radar, especially compared to the other big races taking place next Tuesday. But these open races, the, these you know races in heavily Republican and Democratic districts are, are often very consequential uh, when it comes to the makeup of Congress, and especially when it comes to Israel policy and, and to the Jewish community more broadly. Um, I think Matt laid out the demographics of the district pretty nicely. Uh, it has a very large Haitian American community in it. It's a Caribbean community, a majority non-white um, in that district, but um, it, it's and it's one that elects Democrats uh, comfortably every every. So year. whoever whoever wins on Tuesday presumably is is unless something happens, going to be in Congress for a long time. That's right, and 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 Matt can talk a little bit more about the campaign, but there are especially from the the Jewish pro-Israel point of view, there are two candidates that kind of are operating on two different poles of that issue. You've got um, a state legislator by the name of Omari Hardy, who actually gave an interview to a Jewish insider and and basically came out for BDS and uh, very critical of Israel in his comments. And then they become a big issue in this race in the home stretch. And on the other hand, you have uh, Broward County Commissioner Barbara Sharif, who uh, is is positioning herself as one of the more moderate candidates on the Democratic field, very pro-Israel, um, and and is also an African-American Muslim Democrat, uh, almost the anti-Ilhan Omar, if you will, uh, given her her views are at odds with, 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 uh, with Omar's. Um, but she is someone who won the endorsement of Emily's List, the, the Democratic group that endorses pro-choice uh, women for office. And she also got some endorsements from from moderate Democratic candidates like uh, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, uh, Lois Frankel, the congresswoman also from South Florida, offered uh, Sharif her endorsement. So this is a very close race. But but you do have two candidates that are kind of, especially when it comes to Israel, have two polar opposite positions um, and, and one that is, you know, much more in the mold of the bipartisan consensus supporting Israel uh, and has been very outspoken about that. And Matt, you've profiled several of these candidates. Uh, maybe just if you have anything to add on as far as who's who in the race. Uh, and also, uh, I know we've, we, you've reported uh, on some polling as well that, that came out uh, before we released the podcast. Just sort of, you know, who's up, who's down? What's the horse race uh, as it stands today? Yeah, yeah. Let me run through a couple of the others and then I'll and then I'll uh, reveal the polling numbers. Um, so Josh laid it out pretty well between Barbara Sharif and uh, Omari Hardy, uh, both of whom I've spoken to. Um, There are probably four other candidates in the race that are viewed as sort of having a, you know, a chance. Uh, The others are State Senator Perry Thurston, um, who was on track to become the uh, Senate Minority Leader, but because of Florida's resigned to run laws, actually all of the uh, elected officials in the race have to leave office after this uh, election. Um, Perry Thurston, Bobby DeBose, he's a state representative. Um, Sheila Sherfless McCormick, who is a healthcare executive, she has run twice before. This is her third time running. She tried to challenge Elsie Hastings twice, and I believe the first time in 2018, she emerged with about 25% of the vote. And then in the second, the second time, she got about 32% of the vote. Dave Wasserman, 
uh, the Cook Political Report uh, forecaster had a pretty kind of interesting um, look at the race in which he suggested that uh, McCorm- sure, Phyllis McCormick, who is spending a lot of money, uh, you know, might have a chance to sort of emerge victorious in a, in a race where the divided field is kind of going to create a very low threshold for victory because she has her billboards plastered all over the highways. They say Sheila on them. Um, you know, people might just she just might be boosting her name ID. The question is whether or not the people who know her name will vote. I talked to a lot of people who knew her name, but didn't know anything about her and didn't know who she was. So, um, and she is Haitian and, uh, all of the candidates are, uh, are black and, um, they, uh, are all sort of relatively pro Israel, um, except for, uh, Amari Hardy, who has adopted, uh, his positions on BDS and, uh, come out against, um, Iron Dome funding and whatnot. So, Barbara Sharif and uh, Dale Holness is the final candidate. I forgot to mention him. He's a Broward County commissioner. He and Barbara Sharif have both been to Israel. Um, They're the only candidates in the race, the only leading candidates in the race who have been to Israel. And Holness is positioning himself as a kind of true successor to Hastings, who was really regarded as a pro-Israel champion in the House. Um, But people have disputed his claim that Hastings endorsed him before he died. And because Hastings never made that public, it's kind of become a point of tension in the race. So that sort of lays it out. Um, Okay. There we got the who's who now who's up, who's down. So the polling, which I actually have just uh, acquired um, right before this podcast is uh, from expedition strategies And I'm looking at it now um, and expedition strategies conducted 500 total interviews in the district with a sample of likely Democratic primary voters. I mean, you probably did as many outside the bagel shop, I would assume, but but we'll go for (laughs) We'll go with the official polling. We'll keep going. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I should have. (laughs) I should be writing my own poll. Um, This this is where I kind of think that Wasserman's piece uh, is perceptive. The Sherfulis McCormick, who isn't an elected official and doesn't really have an established base in the district, aside from the fact that she's run twice, is leading the race with 15% um, among those who have already voted and those who are yet to vote. Dale Holness and Barbara Sharif, who are Broward County commissioners, the two who have been to Israel, are respectively at 14 and 13. Um, And then Perry Thurston is at 10. Bobby DuBose is at 6. And Amari Hardy, who was really kind of regarded as a potentially squad-like figure, someone who could sort of harness his uh, large harness, like the sort of grassroots fundraising mechanism that one would expect of a Twitter following of his size. He hasn't really emerged um, as kind of like a viable candidate, as this polling suggests. Uh, he's at 5%. And then the other candidates are kind of not really regarded as as that serious in the race but we'll we'll see what the final results reveal but the margin of error suggests that Sherfulis McCormick, Dale Holdis and Barbara Sharif are all sort of vying for the top spot. And is there an undecided number uh, in that poll that you saw? Yes, sorry. Um 27% say uh, they don't know. Wow. So so here we are 
day before election day, and we have a razor thin multi uh, candidate race with a, with a good amount of undecided hanging out there, with some last minute endorsements coming for Sharif. This could get very very interesting, Josh. Don't know is winning, and and that's uh, that that's striking that we're a few days away from the election, and a lot of voters in the district still don't know who the candidates are. I, I tend to think that helps the the candidates with more of an institutional. Uh, backing uh, the Emily's List's endorsement is key, I think, in, in that regard for Sharif. But having the profile of an elected official, having the name ID uh, is going to be a big advantage in this close race. It's anyone's game. Um, and, uh, you know, it, but but yeah, like this is 27 percent is almost double the the don't know percentage is almost double that of the front runner right now. And that's a, an unusual dynamic, given that we're only a few days from the election. Yeah, and, and Matt, you interviewed real pro- profiles of most of, of these viable candidates. You just went over at least six of them. Uh, the extraordinary interview with Omari Hardy is is what Josh had referenced uh, at the top uh, of our podcast. And, and just to recap, Hardy had previously opposed BDS, announced to you in your interview his support for BDS, and said he would have voted against Iron Dome funding in favor of conditioning aid to Israel. Uh, prior to that interview, did you have any hints that Hardy planned on changing his position? position in that conversation? Uh, no. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that I had any hints that he um, planned on taking, uh, that he planned on supporting BDS in particular, um, which when I spoke with him, I was actually not aware that he had come out against BDS in a sort of a local Jewish democratic forum about a month prior. Um, and then because that actually had not been recorded, but I spoke with the person who moderated it. You know, I when I started reaching out to candidates in this race a few weeks ago, Hardy was actually the first person to call me back. And it really seemed like he wanted to get something off his chest. <laughs> uh, I wasn't I guess I was just sort of a bit taken off guard by the readiness with which he was willing to expound on on his on his views like around BDS and his opposition to the Iron Dome funding and his support for conditioning aid. Those two, those last two things were some were things that he came out very quickly in support of. Sorry, <laughs> they, he, he quickly opposed Iron Dome funding and he quickly uh, supported conditioning aid to Israel. It took a little while to get him to say that he supported BDS, but I kind of got the sense that he did. We talked for about 90 minutes and as the conversation progressed, that is a long call for a candidate to give a reporter. Ninety minutes, wow. Yeah, he's uh, you know he he was pretty open uh, about his views. It just his research led him to this viewpoint that has caused him a lot of uh, a lot of problems in this race. The Jewish community is pretty unified against him. It seems um, Democratic majority for Israel. Uh, which usually sort of gets involved in races a little earlier, it seems, um, released uh, an attack ad against him in the local Jewish newspaper a couple of days ago. Um, but he's kind of embraced that. Uh, he, I just actually saw on Twitter, I had missed it yesterday, he sort of said uh, mission accomplished or something like that or achievement unlocked, um, you know, DMFI is going after me. And then he tweeted, at uh, Corey Bush and Nina Turner, who have, I guess, also been uh, targeted by DF, DMFI, according to his tweet. 
Well, Josh, let's talk about the strategy a little bit and the politics of this and how it plays out. I- I'm struck because, you know, we talked about a similar dynamic, uh, which Matt just referenced uh, in the Nina Turner, uh, Chantel Brown race. This was an issue of contrast between the candidates, the pro-Israel candidate won. Um, now we have somebody who, you know, maybe they think that because of the squad and because of the national politics, some of the base uh, debates that they've seen in the progressive far left elements that may be coming out on a hard tack on Israel could somehow create an insurgency campaign, could appeal uh, to, to a left-wing base. Uh, if that fails uh, for Hardy, which, which if the current polling holds is likely to happen, and in fact you come out with somebody like a Sharif, a black Muslim pro-Israel supporter who's been to Israel, what does that sort of all mean to the squad and the politics of the squad going forward? And if you're a Democratic consultant, what do you take away now with two elections in the, in the bag. Well, look, it's more than two. You can look at the Louisiana primary election where you had a moderate and a progressive. The moderate Troy Carter won. Look at Terry McAuliffe, who's we, we're going to talk about his race in a little bit, but he won a primary where you had candidates running even further to his left. Um, you saw how big the victory was in Chantel Brown's race. Um, the reality is, especially in these like diverse, not largely non-white districts like we saw in Ohio, the progressive position, which includes these days, like instinctively being against Israel, is not a popular one. It turns off a lot of people. And you're seeing that again here in Florida, where Hardy got himself in trouble. And I don't think most people are voting on Israel, but he just squarely positioned himself in the extreme on the far left. And that's not where most Democrats are, even in a heavily Democratic, largely uh, black district down in, in South Florida. So, I mean, we're seeing this lesson repeated over and over again in Democratic primaries where, the, the you know, unless you're in like a very, you know, bougie Park Slope district or Omar's district in Minneapolis, there's some small slices of, of, of America where you can find the woke far left anti-Israel position to get some support. But outside of those small number of districts, that stuff is toxic. It, it's, it's toxic within the party and it's toxic even within Democratic primaries. And this Florida race looks like another example of a candidate trying to distinguish himself on the left flank ending up shooting himself in the foot on Israel and allowing uh, a more moderate conversation and a more moderate uh, campaign to oppose him uh, to emerge. Josh, you mentioned a lot of other races. I want to get to them shortly. Before we leave uh, Florida, Matt, uh, you had made this point before. Elsie Hastings, the late congressman, Elsie Hastings, uh, had been well-respected uh, within the pro-Israel community uh, nationally, uh, known to be a pro-Israel champion. Uh, I had the privilege of working with him and his uh, staff uh, for many years uh, when my old boss, Mark Kirk, was first in the House, worked on a lot of projects together. Uh, really an incredible man. His legacy felt there in the district. How has that sort of played into the race? I know you spoke to Elsie uh, Hastings' son this past week. Anything you learned uh, about his father in the course of your reporting? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I would say that he left a really large void in the district that none of the candidates have really been able to suggest they'll fill. Um, a lot of them are sort of vowing to advance his legacy, but, you know, he was Elsie Hastings. He was in Congress for nearly 30 years. Um, he was a trailblazing civil rights lawyer. Um, he kind of was a, a Lazarus of sorts. He was impeached as the, as the first black federal judge from Florida in the 1980s. And they came back with a vengeance when he, you know, 
returned to the House, the same legislative body that had taken him down in 1993. Um, but one of the most interesting things that I learned about him that I couldn't really find online or, you know, anywhere <laughs> is that he was sort of conversational in Yiddish. And I thought that that was kind of unique and, and interesting. Um, and I got a, some fun anecdotes for a story that I wrote that we just published this morning. Um, he had uh, his parents were live in domestic servants who lived with uh, Jewish families in New York and uh, Los Angeles. And Elsie Hastings lived with them as well, it seems. And he actually was the uh, babysitter for filmmaker John Landis when he was young. Um, but he liked to pepper his, you know, his speech with uh, Yiddish, Yiddish aphorisms. And I spoke with uh, one of his former uh, like staffers who said that when Alcee Hastings met his future wife's grandmother, who uh, was who spoke Yiddish, uh, he was able to talk with her in, in broken Yiddish, but still Yiddish nonetheless. I just thought that was kind of a humanizing detail. And it sort of like was a suggestion of how deep his sort of, you know, his connection with the Jewish community went Incredible legacy. Uh, Josh, let's talk uh, zooming out a little bit more. We have a Virginia governor's race. We have a New Jersey governor's race. We have some mayoral races, a couple of congressionals as well elsewhere in the country. Uh, what are you looking at? Virginia, 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 my home state. Um, and it's going to be the lead story, I believe, um, all week next week as we figure out who wins this governor's race between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin. Um, and one of the, the fascinating issues uh, is that Youngkin has been able to make up ground with some of the moderate, you know, anti-Trump, but, but pragmatic minded voters by, number one, capitalizing on the, the, the woes that Biden's facing down the river in Washington, but also focusing on education, educational standards, school openings um, from enclosures from last year, curriculum in schools, uh, moving, moving uh, with, with What's been branded as critical race theory uh, being taught in a lot of a lot of uh, school districts in the state. It's an issue that's now number one or number two, depending on what poll you're looking at in Virginia. It's an issue that Youngkin has capitalized on in the final month of this race. You watch TV, Northern Virginia, Richmond, Tidewater. It's all you see is uh, Youngkin targeting a line McAuliffe made about essentially saying that parents are secondary to, to school boards and school administrators. And, uh, you know, if you to talking to both campaigns, Youngkin sounds awfully confident that he's going to pull out a big upset on Tuesday. And uh, um, I'm seeing there's some some coverage. McAuliffe apparently got some of his staffers to dress up as neo-Nazis. And or we don't know who, who these folks are, but these are Democrat, Democratic uh, volunteers, staffers, likely affiliated with the campaign, trying to pull a stunt at the last minute, uh, dressing up uh, as, as white supremacists. And it sounds like um, my, my coverage of McAuliffe and the way that they're feeling in the final days of the campaign, it sounds like uh, they're pretty desperate. They're pretty concerned about where things are headed. And do you feel that these are local dynamics, state dynamics? Obviously, we've seen some indication of a tightening in New Jersey as well. Uh, or, or is this the national sort of, you know, the, the fall of Joe Biden's numbers, the pull on, on the Democratic ticket, the feeling of unease in the American electorate? How do you account for, you know, what, which, how do you allocate it, I guess? What, what's the proportion of just Virginia or just New Jersey politics versus the national climate? It's a combination of the two. Uh, there's no coincidence that Youngkin started to get momentum when Biden's numbers 
started to go downhill in the summer. Uh, that that you know the the Virginia race always the governor's race always takes place a year after the presidential election. It's the only game in town, and it almost always goes against the party of power in the White House. So there's always an automatic sense in Virginia to want to check the folks in power. And you see this in Washington and you see Biden's troubles, but you also have the Democratic Party that took over control of both the state house and the state Senate in the last few years under Trump. And they've moved to the left pretty, pretty fast uh, as they've gotten real power. It's really, really the first liberal majority, uh, real sense of power among like liberals in Virginia in many, many years. I mean, maybe in the state's history, because the Democratic Party used to be more conservative. And even when Democrats had control, it was always sort of a more moderately governed state. They got full control in 2019. They moved to the left in a whole host of areas. And Youngkin is capitalizing on that backlash. Um, so there's a natural desire for a check in both in Washington and in, in Richmond. And the education issue, like I said, is really going gangbusters because uh, you have some of these um, suburban school boards that were always known as sort of moderate, pragmatic, mainstream institutions that, you know, no matter whether they were Democrats in the majority, Republicans in the majority, they always kind of. These were partisan ideological bodies. These were folks trying to, you know, help the schools promote a culture of excellence. And you've seen a lot more ideological um, issues. You know, these academic ideas are kind of percolating and moving from the university into the K to twelve space. And a lot of, you know, it's not the Republicans certainly, conservatives at school board meetings certainly, but a lot of quiet, quietly protesting moderate parents in the suburbs are, are really uh, kind of apoplectic on what's 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 been going on in their kids' schools. Uh, it's partly curriculum. It's also the closures that took place last year in many Virginia schools. So there's no doubt that education is all. I mean, I, I think you had to have Biden's numbers fall to create an, a, a marketplace for for skepticism of the Democratic Party to see a little more about what Youngkin's campaign was was all about. But I, I don't think Youngkin would win if it wasn't for the education issue and it wasn't for the Democratic Party moving very far to the left in many areas when it comes to education and when it comes to the, the school systems. Matt, looking at New Jersey, you've interviewed both the incumbent governor and his Republican uh, opponent. Uh, what should our listeners know about the race from your reporting? Sure. Um, yes, I've spoken with Phil Murphy, the incumbent Democratic governor, and Jack Cittarelli, who is trying to unseat him. Um, the interesting thing that I guess is kind of playing out in this race is uh, Jack Cittarelli is historically somewhat more moderate. He's some moderate conservative and, you know, last time and has been critical even of uh, Chris Christie uh, has, you know, harshly criticized Donald Trump, which is now being sort of used against him um, by Murphy. He did attend a stop the steal rally that Murphy has tried to use to cast him as uh, something more of an extremist. Um, And it either is working or Chitterelli is not, you know, a viable enough candidate to emerge, like, you know, to beat, to beat him on Tuesday. The polling suggests that Murphy is, you know, has a comfortable lead. Um, one interesting thing about this race for the Jewish community is that Chitterelli actually went to Israel in August um, and, you know, as a sort of public show of support for for Israel uh, after the I believe it was like, you know, around the Ben and Jerry's debacle and after the May conflict with Israel and Hamas, 
Um, anyway, he has suggested that Murphy is not supportive enough of, of Israel. Um, but to be honest with you, that's kind of a hard claim to make uh, for Murphy. He's been to Israel several times. Um, he's, I, I believe, uh, sort of increased trade between Israel and New Jersey. Um, he was the former ambassador to Germany, the U.S. ambassador to Germany, and has a sort of deep knowledge of the Holocaust and, you know, Jewish concerns around, the, you know, the Holocaust and, and, uh, and anti-Semitism. Um, and he has pretty close relationships with the Jewish community in New Jersey. Uh, and I would note the prerogative of the host, uh, Governor Murphy, also uh, one of the first uh, states uh, leading the divestment of New Jersey pension fund from Unilever, the parent company of Ben & Jerry's, uh, implementing their state anti-BDS law, uh, which now uh, the state of New York, others uh, are, are following. Uh, and so uh, definitely uh, has uh, the gravitas uh, on, on that issue. Uh, Josh, um, the team at Jewish Insider covered uh, one more issue that that's interestingly come up uh, over the last few days. The Illinois General Assembly passed its congressional remap in the wee hours of Friday morning. Uh, two of the leading supporters of BDS in Congress, two members who voted against Iron Dome funding, Chewy Garcia, Marie Newman, combined into one district, with Newman now declaring she will challenge in a neighboring district against Sean Caston. Uh, a lot going on there. Break, break down for us uh, what that might look like uh, and uh, whether or not the Democrat majority for Israel might have another primary race on their hand. Uh, they very well may. And actually, even though this is a very partisan map that is going to lock in a Democratic gerrymander in the state, there's some good news for people who uh, are against the extremes on both sides. Uh, as Jewish Insider reported, uh, we now know that Congresswoman Marie Newman, a freshman, a progress, very, very progressive member, is now running against a somewhat more moderate member, uh, Sean Kasten. Uh, it's going to be a battle royale, Democrat on Democrat uh, campaign. And it's, you know, Israel is bound to become a major dividing line between the two. Kasten uh, is, is a pretty mainstream uh, supporter, Democratic supporter of Israel in the, in the broad sense of the word. And, uh, you know, Rory Newman, as you noted, Rich, was one of the very small number of Democrats who voted against funding for Iron Dome. Um, and keep in mind, she, she was the can She ran twice in, in her in her current district running against uh, a more moderate Democrat. She lost the first time against Dan Lipinski, beat him very narrowly the second time. Um, but she has been running as the progressive activist. She failed the first time, succeeded the second time. Now she's going to have another race facing an incumbent uh, who is much, much more moderate than she is. Um, look, it's, it, you know, it's, a, it's an open race. Kasten, I think, has more money, more experience, better political skills. The district, um, is, I think, may have a few more of Newman's constituents um, um, but but it's going to be close. And uh, I do think this is a race that you can bet that DMFI and other pro-Israel groups are going to be looking at closely. Uh, the other race that hasn't gotten the other implication of the new map that hasn't gotten as much attention is that uh, Mary Miller, a freshman Republican from Illinois, um, is probably going to or she's in the same she's drawn in the same seat as Congressman Bost. Mike Bost. You're familiar with him. Um yeah, I don't know if, if your audience remembers Congresswoman Miller within uh, uh, before she was even, I think, sworn in to office, made a comment when she said at the January 6th rally, Hitler was right on one thing. He said, whoever has the youth has the future. 
she apologized for quoting Hitler at, 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 a, at that January 6th rally. But, um, the, you know, I, I'm sure she hasn't made many friends, um, you know, uh, that it wasn't a good way to make friends in the Jewish community. She now may be facing a tough primary against Congressman Bost, who I think is uh, uh, may have the advantage as a more experienced lawmaker in that district, in that new district. And, and and while we're talking about uh, the wonders of gerrymandering, we also uh, have Adam Kinzinger, uh, who uh, obviously has made a lot of news uh, since January 6th, uh, uh, now being put into a district uh, with Congressman Darren LaHood uh, and not even going to fight out that primary. Uh, and so having announced that he will not be uh, running for reelection in the House. Um, so, yes, that is the lay of the land in Illinois. Uh, but I have uh, two last questions, uh, one for both of you. You're both people are pretty seasoned. You've been around. You've interviewed a lot of political candidates. I want to go a little bit behind the scenes. Matt, let's start for you. You've easily interviewed over 100 candidates in the last year. What have you learned from interviewing political candidates? Heavy question. <laughs> you learn that you uh, kind of have to prod a little bit more to get something a little more truthful. You know, Michael Kinsley said that uh, a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth. <laughs> and Josh, you've been interviewing politicians for years. How do you get them off standard talking points? How, how do you deal with flacks like me who have trained people to, to talk to you in a certain way? You know, Rich, the challenge these days, I mean, back, back in the day, I think there was a lot less cynicism, a lot, and then a lot less skepticism about like the motives of re- reporters, and there, there was more trust between the press and and a lot of lot of politicians that they they could be more candid, more open. They wouldn't have to be stuck to their talking points as much as, as they are. You know, the one thing I love that Jewish Insider does, and I think I, I I've done this as a reporter over the years, is really talk to the candidates before they get a lot. You know, the the folks in primaries, like in Florida twenty, talk to the candidates before they they get all their handlers around them and get to know them. You know, when they're not ready for prime time, who they are, and and that, that has benefits and and, and and downsides as a candidate. Um, I think sometimes candidates end up becoming too scripted, too um, you know consultant driven, and and they lose kind of that humanity that they got them into politics in the first place. And, and, and sometimes you get that moment of honesty uh, in the case of Hardy in Florida, you know, understandably got him in trouble. Um, but that's that's good journalism. And frankly, we want more transparency. We want to know more about who these people really are before consultants tell them what to say to get elected. I actually find in the, in the age of Trump and in the age of the left really pushing the Democratic Party further and further away from the mainstream, understanding who candidates really are rather than who they're pretending to be to win votes is actually as crucial as, as, as ever. You know, some Republicans may say nice things about Trump, but personally, they would vote in a very um, anti-Trump or would not, you know, be, be, be end up being showing a sense of independence and not be a Trumpy candidate uh, when all is said and done. And likewise, you have Democrats, you know, like Richie Torres, I think, is someone who, if you know his life, if you knew his life story, if you knew his background before he ran for Congress, you'd know that he's every bit as principled as, as he's been acting uh, as a Democrat, taking on some of the more extreme elements of his own party in Congress. So I like to get to know candidates before they're kind of stage managed, um, before they get the handlers around them. Chantel Brown was kind of a good example like that in Ohio, where she was, um, you know, she had some political experience, but um, her race was extremely important. And a lot of people did get to know her before she ended up um, when people thought that race was going to be on the, on the radar screen for a lot of folks. Got to know her and got to, got to get a sense of what, what her background really was all about. 
Josh Crossshower, Matt Castle, thank you so much for joining. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Go vote. Yeah.